Arnie. Evening, everyone. That was beautiful, wasn't it? It was amazing. Good to see you. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Chris. Um, I'm one of the leaders here at St. Peter's. Um, come and have a chat with me at the end if you want. You also don't have to if I, I repulse you with what I say tonight. Um, we are in week two of our summer season, Summer of Love. Uh, we call it that because it's a, book, it's a journey through the book of 1 John. Um, and John is often referred to as the Apostle of Love. Um, if you missed last week's talk, um, Alice spoke in the evening and Anne spoke in the morning. Do listen to them because they set up the whole series. So it's really good for you to do that so we can build on it week by week. Um, and chapter 2, to be honest, is too big to cover. So I selected two verses which Arnie read out and then another scripture as well. Um, so I've been praying and asking God this week, like out of that huge chapter, what do you want me to talk about? So I'm going to hone in on those two verses shortly. But before I get onto that, did you know that next week is going to be 30 degrees again? Are we all fed up with the heat yet? I am absolutely done. My, uh, my dad's side of the family are Irish. We're not very good in the heat. There's some Irish guys in the house tonight now. I know you are. Yeah, I can't deal with it. I'm done. I want winter. I want duvets. I want roast dinners again. Dwayne's shaking his finger because you actually have a woolly jumper with you now. Just in case. There we go. Um, how many of you guys love going to the beach when it's hot? Hands up. In the UK? Not so much. Oh, you do. Oh, masochist. Um, any bodyboarders here? Anyone do bodyboarding? One or two? The first time I went bodyboarding was the last time I went bodyboarding. Imagine this. I'm six years old. Um, my sister's two years older than me. She's 16. She was the arm wrestling champion in her class. She was a strong girl. Um, she was also one of those older siblings who was really resentful that she wasn't an only child. Um, anyway, I remember being on the beach in Cornwall, and my sister, she's a great swimmer, and she's in the sea with a bodyboard, and she's nailing it. She is brave and confident. Um, I was none of those things. Um, she's shouting and she's hollering and she's whooping. She's having a great time riding the waves. And I'm stood there probably about waist deep thinking, that looks fun, but there's absolutely no way I'm going to get in that freezing cold. Then bang, she smashes straight into me, wallop. Um, and I, I end up in what can only be described as some sort of death roll. And I'm caught under the water. Who knows where the bodyboard's gone? Nobody cares. I know where my sister is. She sat on my head. She sat on my head and I am completely submerged underwater. Her little, freckly, sweet brother, that's me by the way, um, totally submerged underwater and apparently she doesn't realize that she's keeping me totally submerged. I'm in shock. I'm not surprised because she's been looking for an opportunity to become the favorite kid again. But I am in shock and I'm underwater and for a moment I can't do anything because I'm pinned under the water. But at some point, my brain is like, you've got to get out of here. So I try to get out, but I can't. I'm pinned under the water. I can't go anywhere. I'm held down. And I'm totally bound in the water by my sister until, fortunately, my dad was watching, and he ran over, and he pulls her out of the water, and I jump up out of the water. And I'm like, she's trying to kill me. She wasn't, but that was maybe a joke. Um, but there's all my family on the seashore laughing at me. And, yeah, thank you. Oh. To be bound, to be bound means to be held under, held under the power of something. Even when we want to get up and we want to get out, we can't. 
And what starts off as fun can sometimes turn into something which is holding me down in an environment where I'm not meant to be able to survive. This being bound is what I'm going to talk about tonight. And it's a picture of what sin does to us. Now, we don't talk on sin much in St. Peter's, but I am going to talk about it tonight. I'm going to explore why we don't overly focus on sin, but why it's important that we explore Jesus' take on sin. Because let's be honest, we often all feel stuck. We all feel bound, and we all feel that we're sometimes stuck, maybe not all the time, but for a season, and we feel that we want to get out, but we can't. Sometimes they're coping mechanisms. We, again, we all do it. Sometimes we're struggling, and we can self-medicate with things like unhealthy attachments to drink, relationships, exercise, social media, work, shopping, sex, and all those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but if they become unhealthy attachments to self-medicate, then they're not good. We can also be self-medicating with things that are bad for us, drugs and porn and things like that, things that actually start to destroy our lives. We don't want to do these things. We know that they're not right for us, but we can often feel powerless and bound and held under the power of it, unable to resist. I mean, let's be honest, I've been there. I'm there. We're all there most days. Like, I think we can all like, not worry about this because we're all in that same category. Like, so let's not stress out about me using sin um, because we're all there and let's not worry about it. But this is what sin does to us. Sin binds us. But in the reading, the first reading Arnie just did in 1, uh, 1 John chapter 2, John the author says this, My dear children, I write to this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And for a while now, as a few of us have been having some really good sort of intense discussions around like, what is sin? Like it's a word that we hear at church or in Christian circles quite a lot. What does it mean for my Christian faith? How should I approach it? How can I, how can we be freed from its power or influence over our lives and the lives of those around us? And what does Jesus think about sin? What is sin? Sin, I'll give you a definition. Sin is a standard set, not by people, not by culture, not by governing bodies, not by tradition, but by the creator of heaven and earth. The one who spoke the earth, the solar system, the universe into existence. And he set a standard. And when we miss that standard, it's called sin. The Greek word for sin is hamatia. And it simply means to fail or to miss the mark. And according to the Old Testament, there were over 600 marks or rules or laws, and no one could keep them. Not one person was able to do it. And as much as I would love to move or redefine those marks, that would be nothing short of me playing God. The message of Jesus is that he came to earth, he put on skin and bone, and he lived for approximately 33 years, yet without sinning once. The Bible says that on the cross... He bore our sin. He took it all upon himself. He absorbed the sin of the world, the sin of everybody who'd ever existed. And he, on that cross, he was the once and for all sacrifice for all of creation. And he, he destroyed the power of sin in our lives for all of those who believe in him. Much has been made of the human reality and this topic of sin. Um, now, the thing is with sin, the focus on sin is relevant and it is important, but there's a paradoxical problem when we speak about sin. 
The problem is that when we focus too much on sin, it can in and of itself become self-defeating. Because by focusing on sin, by focusing on removing sin and eradicating sin and being passionate about sin and calling sin out, oftentimes we think even more about ourselves. We become consumed by our own performance and ourselves, and so this cycle persists. And by being obsessive about it, we find very little freedom or progress in it. So what does Jesus have to say about sin? If Jesus was approached with the gross sin of racism, what would he say? If he was approached with the other things that might not only hurt ourselves, but other people, what would be his commentary? What would be his statement? What would be his tone? What would be his response? It's important that we ask these questions because the focus of the New Testament is on following in the footsteps of Jesus, of living, learning, and loving like him, which is our passion here at St. Peter. So if Jesus was preaching here today, what would he say? only we had a book, a record of what Jesus said and did. If only we could read or study Jesus on particular issues. If only we knew how he would react when he was presented with sin. Well, obviously we do. Um, And in the second passage that Arnie read out earlier, in the middle of the teaching, um, a load of people, so Jesus is teaching, and a a load of people come into his teaching Let's be honest, it's a load of men. They interrupt his teaching in the middle of it. A group of men dragging a woman who has been caught having sex with a man who is married to someone else, and they drag her into church or the temple. This woman is probably not fully clothed. She's lucky she's managed to grab a bed sheet or a blanket. They caught her in bed with a married man, and according to Jewish law and custom, that was sin. And at that time, that particular sin was punishable by death. Specifically, the pulverizing of her skull with rocks, a gory, graphic, and horrific way to die. So can you imagine with me that in 30 seconds' time, a group of angry men come into the church, and they drag a woman in here, interrupting me in full flow, and I'm not Jesus, but I'm the one speaking like Jesus was, interrupting me, dragging a woman in here, a woman who's been caught having sex with a married man, and asking me, they're raging, what should we do with her? Let's be honest, we'd all be absolutely stunned. And I reckon all eyes would turn to me to think, how is he going to deal with this? These men have come to church ready to crush the skull of a woman in sin. So what would Jesus say? These men are very focused on not sinning. And they've categorized some sinners worse than others. And I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. What about their sin? which is a great point and a great question. Clearly, these men have decided that their sin is not as bad as her sin because her sin is a sex sin. Her sin is visible. Her sin is obvious to everyone. And before this, in Matthew chapter 5, one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes this a step further. He said, in the law, if you have sex with someone else who's married to someone else, that's a sin. But I tell you, if you even look at somebody with lust in your eyes, then that's adultery or that's immoral crowd is stunned. Jesus has raised the bar. He's intensified the standard of what is righteous. So what will Jesus say now that he's faced with this woman whose head is most likely bowed in complete and utter humiliation and shame and fear for her life, which if we'll be honest, that was the intention of that group of men was to, who are passionate about rules and regulations. 
And they've come with every intention of killing this woman. And also we read it later on in the text. They've come tooled up. Like they're ready to go. They've got rocks in their hands ready to kill her. Is it not a sin though? Are they wrong in their reading of the Old Testament? But it was in fact a sin. So what will Jesus say? At first he says nothing. Jesus is about to show us what it looks like to walk in his footsteps. He's not quick to speak. He's not quick to judge. He's not quick to throw stones. He said nothing. The silence was unbearable for them. John, the, uh, the author at the time, says they kept on questioning him. Don't forget, they, they burst in here with rocks. They're angry. They're not questioning him in a nice way. They are jacked up and ready to go. But Jesus said nothing. Instead, he bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. It's a shame that we don't know what John wrote. Um, John recorded really important things like calling himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Like telling everybody that when Jesus rose from the tomb, there was a foot race between him and Peter and he got there first. And also when Jesus was arrested in the high court, um, John likes to record the fact that Peter couldn't get in. But John, being the legend he is, knew someone and managed to get people in. John doesn't record what Jesus wrote, but John does record those other things. It is annoying, though, because we'd all love to know what Jesus wrote. We'd love to know what Jesus' take is on sin. Is Jesus light on sin? Does he overlook sin? Does he give sin the wink and the gun? He's like, yeah. What is Jesus' take on sin? The men in front of Jesus are angry. They're indignant. They're right on Scripture. But they're wrong. I find it hugely challenging that we can be so right and convinced of our rightness, but also so utterly wrong. These men are judgmental. They've created systems, um, how to categorize sin to make sure that their sin isn't as bad as someone else's. And if we're being honest, if we're being honest we sometimes do the same. I know I do. Because sometimes the implications and ramifications of the acts of sin are worse than others. But somehow that their sin is worse and of course, if someone's sin is worse than mine, then that makes me better than them. You may even be thinking, I don't even believe in sin. Fine, you don't believe in sin. We all have a moral and ethical compass. We all hear of things that are going on in the world, and there's something innate within us that goes, yeah, but that's just wrong. So what do we do with this? I'd like to suggest that there is a savior who is able to save us from sin. So what does this saviour say? I like the Passion Translation that Arnie read. It says this. Angry, they kept insisting that he answer, that he answer their question. Their question was, should we stone her to death? So Jesus stood up and he looked at them. And he said, let the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone. And then he went back to doodling in the dust. Do you see Jesus' take on sin? Did you see it? Did you see what Jesus' focus is when it comes to sin? These men came to church prepared to point the finger at someone in sin. That's why they came to church. Now at the end of the story, Jesus says to the woman, go now and leave your life of sin. But these men have come to church intent on focusing on sin, on calling people out of their sin, because that's the right approach to sin, is it? you've got to call people out. I hear this all the time. You've got to, got to tell them the truth. 
How will they know if we don't tell them? Jesus does not have that approach. He does not have the same approach as the religious, religious leaders on sin, who think that we're freed from sin by focusing on it, by calling it out, by obsessing over it, by ostracizing people, by shaming people, by killing people, by creating a hierarchy of sin. That hierarchy of sin in simple language is a system of religion. Religion is an unhealthy obsession with sin, traditions, categories, elitism, exclusivity, and hierarchy. It is using scripture to elevate ourselves over other people. But what does Jesus say on sin? Did you see it? I'll read the line again. Let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone. Do you see it? Could this statement alone cause the men to drop their rocks and slowly, quietly exit the scene, even according to the law that they were right about? They were not of the spirit and of the heart and of the approach of Jesus. I believe that when Jesus said those words, that the spirit of God cut them to the core, it went right to their heart. Later in the book of John, Jesus says, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. His words are full of spirit and life, not death, life. Then John tells us that those who heard Jesus' words began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I'll ask you again, did you see it? Do you see Jesus' take on sin? Because Jesus has the complete opposite approach to sin than these religious men. Because they were like, hey, Jesus, we found someone. We found somebody like one of the worst sins. It's like a big deal. It's that bad. We can crush her head with a rock. Jesus, what do you say? And he says nothing. So they push him. Hey, Jesus, come on. We've asked you a question. What do we do? Give us a verdict. Can we do it or not? Sound vaguely familiar to some of us? I'm not that bad. I'm not a racist. I'm not a criminal. I'm not a homophobic. I'm not a Tory. That was a joke. I'm not that bad. I might be a little bit manipulative. I might be a little bit controlling. I might not be, I might be like a little bit not 100% honest all the time. It's funny how we phrase things, isn't it, to make ourselves feel better. I might be a little bit self-centered. I might be a, a little bit judgmental. I might exaggerate a bit too much. I might drink and eat a little bit too much. But it's not that bad, is it? Not as bad as them. This approach to sin reveals the human condition and we think, well, I'm not that bad and you're worse. Because we think that this is the proper approach to sin, that we've created this hierarchy. But did you see Jesus' take on sin? Jesus says, if you don't have sin, you could throw the first stone. The religious leaders are focused in, they're focused on who has sin. Jesus is focused on who doesn't have sin. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't take sin seriously. They didn't, he, he doesn't ignore it. In fact, he took it so seriously that he became sin on our behalf. He consumed all of our sins in himself. He died. And um, our verse for tonight says, these the atoning sacrifice for all our sins and not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus' focus is on those who don't have sin. 
all of a sudden, we are left with a very small group. It's not really even a group, is it? It's one person. It's the one person saying, let's do this. Whoever doesn't have sin, you go first. Those men, they knew they had sin. That's all he said. They knew they had sin. I'd like to suggest we all know it. We all know that we've got sin. We all know that we hurt people. We all know that we're not all honest honest all the time, that we can be selfish and proud. I have to ask God multiple times a day for forgiveness. Every single day. We all do. These men knew they had sin, but when they came into the presence of Jesus and he spoke, they were convicted to their core. I actually can't believe they didn't respond with the question of who doesn't have sin? Who doesn't have sin? Isn't that the question begging to be asked? Who doesn't have sin? That is the question and that is the focus. And the answer to that question is Jesus. He has no sin. Here's a little insight about the Christian faith and probably most of my talks. It's all about Jesus. It's the answer to everything for me. Now Jesus is saying that the only person who can throw rocks, the only person without sin, in fact, he didn't have a sinful desire. The Bible says he was tempted to sin, which basically means like if, I don't know, Brandon is a healthy guy, but if I was going to tempt you with a cake, I'm tempting you. That's not your fault. So he was tempted to sin, but he had no sinful desire within him. I mean, that's amazing. He was the one person. Jesus is the answer. It can be really easy to see sin everywhere else and to point the finger at other people and to miss the point that the Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. But you see what the story is all about. It's about the one person who is without sin, who can cast a stone. And the good news is, that he won't. The Bible says that they dropped their rocks and they walked away. And the woman's standing there now. Her head probably bowed low. She had sinned. She had done wrong. They were right. And Jesus is still doodling in the dust. It's all very quiet. And he stands up and he looks at her in the eyes and does what only Jesus can do. He says, where are your accusers? Accuser is a key word. In the passage in 1 John 2 that Arnie read, it says, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The word advocate is the counterpoint. It's the exact opposite in the Jewish tradition and language as the word accuser. Jesus calls the devil the accuser in Scripture. And actually throughout Scripture, we see that the devil stands before God accusing us of being sinful sinners. In law, if we've been accused of something... We need an advocate who will and can fight on our behalf because we often are not equipped or we don't have the power or ability to defend ourselves. But for those who believe in Jesus, he is our advocate. He is our defender when we're being accused. And he says to this woman, where are your accusers? What she didn't know and what they didn't know is that she had an advocate in Jesus. And she now, I imagine, bravely lifts up her head and wipes some tears. And she looks around and she's just like, I see no one, Lord. She sees the men who had sentenced her to death are gone. Please hear me. 
Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can do this for us. Only Jesus can forgive us of our mistakes, our wrongs and our sins. Only Jesus can clear the room of our soul filled with condemning accusations, telling us that we are what we've done and that we won't change and that we can end up festering with guilt and shame. Only Jesus can silence the accusations. He silences the accuser's accusations because he is our saviour, our advocate and our king. And what Jesus does with our sin, from the oldest sin you can remember to the newest one that we've just done, is that he forgives. She didn't even ask for forgiveness in the standard and he forgave her. Sorry, in the story. She didn't ask. We said this the other week. A lot of time I'm reading scripture at the moment, I'm like, oh my gosh, you said your sins have been forgiven. Get up and walk to somebody who couldn't walk. The guy didn't even ask. The guy on the cross next to Jesus. His forgiveness is always there and is always free. She didn't ask for forgiveness, but he forgave anyway. He forgives you. He loves you. We can live free and forgiven. And the woman looks up and she just says, I see no one, Lord. And Jesus says, well, certainly I don't condemn you. Go, be free from a life of sin and sin no more. Do you know where the power is that produces that type of freedom? Freedom from envy and jealousy and from judgment and from lying and cheating and racism and pornography and selfishness and greed and all the other things that we don't want to be held down by. The power to overcome that stuff is not found in focusing on it, trying to make myself better and trying to put in rules and trying to be accountable and all that stuff. It's not found there. That's about me again. It's found in the person who had no sin. This is why the Bible tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That is where the power is. That is the victory that overcome the world. We overcome sin by Jesus. Jesus came to set us free from a lifestyle that is doomed to keep on sinning. Jesus is the hope and Jesus is the way. And it's not a once in a lifetime opportunity. We can keep coming back to him every day, cleaned, renewed, restored and set free. Every single day. When we come to him for forgiveness, the Bible says that he remembers our sins no more. So even if we do it again and we're truly sorry, and a lot of people worry, going, well, well, if we're not truly sorry, look, that's down to you. Like, but if you're truly sorry, and you say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I did it again. And he's like, what again? He's able to forgive and he's able to forget. He doesn't keep a record of our wrongs. In 1 Corinthians 13, there's a list of, um, it says what love is. Love is patient, love is kind. And in one uh, translation, it says, keep no record of wrongs. And in another translation, that same verse says, thinks no evil. Jesus can't think evil. So when we come to him and we repent, he just doesn't remember. He can't do it. He forgives and he forgets. So we have an opportunity to take off our old self, our old sinful self, and receive a new one. And when we believe in him, with a, the Bible calls us brand new creations. You get to be new, you get to be made brand new, empowered by the spirit of Jesus to live righteous, to live the life that we want to live, to be the righteousness of God who is perfect and holy. What an opportunity we have to become more like Jesus, to be free. All we have to do in the midst of our shame is to come to him and allow his words to penetrate our heart and to change us from the inside out.
Again, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's not the other way around. It's not trying to be good first in the hope that we're going to be forgiven. It's the other way around. We receive his goodness. We receive his forgiveness. We receive his love. He's done it all. We just have to be open to receiving it. He is so good. And he's looking at each one of us now. And he's saying, I certainly don't condemn you either. Go and be free from a life of sin. Jesus is and always will be more than enough. I think that'll do. Please stand, we're going to pray.